Welcome back to the show. Of course, my name is Darcy, and joining me as always from the Northland, Jason. How's it going, buddy? Good. How's my Flatlander friend? I'm doing lovely. I got a whole day of driving to do tomorrow, so I'm so excited. I'm going to Saskatchewan. Oh, loving the prairie lands. <laughs> Absolutely. And and not just Saskatchewan, but southern, uh, was that, southeastern Saskatchewan. So, yay, good times. It'll be very exciting scenery. No, no disses to uh, any of those prairie Métis out there. I'm just from the big hills, and I, I miss my uh, trees. Yeah, I grew up in Sylvan Lake area, Red Deer area, and uh, I do miss the, the rolling hills and the trees, and I definitely miss that when I go to Saskatchewan. But hey, it is it is what it is. I get to drive around the frickin' countryside. Um, Darcy the Rambling Man. Yeah, yeah, so exciting. So we got a bunch of stuff to talk about tonight. Uh, I thought we'd start off with the... Uh, deal that's going on in Norman Wells right now with the Satu Dene and Métis uh, signing an agreement, I guess, which is like the, seems like the first step towards becoming their own government. Uh, so uh, it says that representatives from the Norman Wells Land Corporation, the territorial and federal governments collaborated the signing of the self-government agreement in principle for the Satu Dene and the Métis of Norman Wells Wednesday evening. So I don't know if you read much about that, Jason, but what were your thoughts about that? Only a little bit. I thought there's, there's lots of really interesting implications to, to this conversation. Um, one, I, I'd like to point out that we have the federal government sitting down in negotiations with Métis people that have absolutely nothing to do with the Métis National Council. Absolutely. I, I think that's important. I also think it's important to recognize that there is a group of Métis people not affiliated with the Métis National Council or its affiliates that is actually further down the road in reaching this holy grail of self-governance. And the real thing that I am really interested in, in watching about this is the partnership with the First Nations community in doing so. Absolutely. I think that's, for me, what what was, I mean, everything you just said was what were some of the interesting things for me. Because when I first read it, I kind of, I just read the headlines and read the comments and it was like, it seemed like it was a Métis agreement. But then when I actually read it, it, it is the Satu Dene and the Métis in Norman Wells that are coming together to form this, uh, this new self-government. Um, and uh, some of the things that were said about it... Um, was their goal was to ensure that the rights of the Satu Dene and Métis of Norman Wells are preserved and protected for future generations. Um, the new government could have the power to collect taxes, decide on membership, run their own child and family services, among other things. Um, so I thought that was really cool. Uh, and and for me, I, I, I don't know, I, I'm with you. I think this is very cool to see. Um, you know, indigenous people, but specifically Métis, that are are way further down the road. <laughs> on self-governance. Um, and I don't know if that's because they partnered with the uh, First Nation, or, or uh, yeah, I guess First Nation. Um, I almost called them Inuit, but uh, so I don't know if it's because of the partnership, but it seems to be moving along quite well. So, and I, I didn't even hear about this beforehand, so. No, and I think it's one of these things that because it's up north again, it kind of quietly has moved along under the radar. And uh, now, now that we're hearing about it is, I think, very significant. I think it should be a model moving forward when 
Métis people are talking about land and land claims and land ownership, rights and resources. This is the perfect model of showing what can happen if uh, Métis people and First Nations work together as a collective. You know, I think, uh, like you talked about, you know, some of the things we've talked about on this show in regards to self-governance uh, for Métis people are being addressed in this thing like land, like taxes, like real things that would happen if you're Métis, if you actually had a Métis government. Absolutely. And it kind of reminds me, like, um, just the way they talk about this, it, it seems like it would become more like a municipal government than anything. Um in the, you know, I'll just read something else that was said. If um, it's part of a final agreement, the, uh, the new government went, will only govern over the members of the what is currently the Land Corporation, uh, the Norman Wells Land Corporation. However, if the population of Norman Wells becomes greater than 70% Indigenous, um, the town of Norman Wells could be dissolved. And this, the I won't even tr- attempt to say the name because I can't speak Denny. But uh, the new the new new uh, government would become the government for Norman what is now Norman Wells. So I thought that was really interesting. But it kind of reminded me of here in Alberta when we talk about how um, you know what's going on up north uh, with the Mackay um, Métis because they kind of have a similar thing where they're they are their own municipality almost, right? Yeah, exactly. They have the this jurisdiction of a defined boundary. I thought that it was an interesting projection in the future where, you know, where you have uh, indigenous people who are among the fast and grow, fastest growing people group in Canada with one of the highest birth rates. So it isn't inconceivable that in the future you could have, and I do agree with you, a largely will be a, at a municipal level. So not necessarily a nation to nation relationship, but you know, I think definitely and for, you know, an important first step in asserting this idea of autonomous governmental control in a real way from AT people, I think unprecedented, really. I think the only thing we've seen even come close to these kinds of agreements is probably what goes on on the settlements. Absolutely. And I think that's something that I, you know, was interesting for me, too, is the the idea that, yeah, well, it's not recognizing that they are separate and, and secluded away from Canada. So it's not like we're cutting that chunk out of you know, the good old Canadian map there. But just the fact that they will have control over their their future, control over what they do, and can control just the same as any other city in the in this country does. I think, even like you said, that's a good first step. I, I don't know if it'll go any further beyond that, or maybe these, you know, these guys will be happy with just that next step. But I do think that's a very important step to take, and... Uh, um, you know, I don't, I don't uh, know much about the Norman Wells area, but I do, I do think it, it sets kind of a good precedent for other communities to be able to do it. Having said that, I don't think we should lump every First Nation and Métis uh, group or community and say, oh, well, if these guys did it, the, everybody else can do it exactly the same. I think this is going to work for these guys, and I, th- I think it's very, very exciting to see, to be honest with you. Oh, I do too. I think there would be applications for it. Um, like you mentioned up uh, in the Fermakai area, I think there's a, a similar tie-in. I think for a lot of First Nations communities, it wouldn't work simply because they are treaty people uh, under that. And yeah. that sets up a little different relationship with the crown. And, 
you know, I think that's something you and I have talked about extensively is working that relationship would have to be very different between Métis people and First Nations communities there. Yep. But not not that that's unworkable either by any stretch of the imagination. Yes. Um, but I think it would be different. So I think, you know, uh, I'm tentatively hopeful. I think this, this uh, lays some good ground. Um, I'm not totally excited that it's not a nation to nation and there's not more autonomous uh, sovereign recognition of Métis people's rights. Yeah. But given the current context of the, the colonial state, uh, I think anytime Métis people can get a leg up and we can begin to govern ourselves has to be going in the right direction. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, especially with kind of the current climate with almost every topic and subject you can find where everything's polarized and it's just vitriol on both sides. I think this says a lot about this is uh, Satu Dene and Métis working together to come to a common goal in a place that they commonly live. And I think, you know, if, if we can read anything into it, I think that it's obviously these people can work together and they can do things together, which harkens back to the, you know, very beginnings of Métis people where we did work together with First Nations. We li- did live in harmony for the most part. I mean, I'm sure there was little skirmishes and stuff, but... For the most part, Métis and First Nations and Inuit or wherever you were, whatever geographic area you were in, lived and worked together and and operated in the same area together. And so I think that's a really good sign here too, is that maybe this is the sign of things to come where, you know, Métis and First Nations, Métis and Inuit, we can start getting back to that inclusiveness with each other, dropping the identity battles. And especially if these guys get to get to decide their own it says membership, but I, I actually, in this case, would prefer they use the term citizen because if they become their own government, they actually do have citizens that they would take care of or, or you know, govern. Um, so I think that's a it's a good sign when, when you can have this kind of cooperation to come to a mutual benefit like that. I think it's really amazing. Exactly. And I think, to ha- and that's really what it is about, uh, we as Métis people being able to have the right to pass laws that best reflect our goals, ambitions, and uh, desires for the future generations that are coming after us, and that best reflect the traditions of our past. And I think any time that we can get a leg up to begin to exert that is great. Um, It would be nice, and I'm as hopeful as you are. I think looking forward to the future, man, would it be nice to see a lot more Métis communities sitting down with First Nations to figure out how to, you know, coalesce uh, our communities into, you know, these kinds of positive moving forward, um, you know, ventures. I think it'd be great. Absolutely. And I, I thought it was interesting too. It seems like the Northwest Territories has uh, way more of uh, advanced and more way more advancement when it comes to Métis anything really, because there's this and then, you know, about a year ago, it was announced that um, that other Métis organization the up, up north up by Yellowknife was getting very close to finalizing a, a land rights, like a land deal with the government, which would have been the first Métis to ever do that. And so it, it just seems interesting that the Northwest Territories is so advanced when it comes to advancing Métis rights and, and land rights and self-governance and things like that, which kind of flies in the face of everything you hear from the cartel about how awesome they are. Well, or, or the, the misnomer that they... All their propaganda machine wants you to believe that they're at the cutting edge. 
they're they're spearheading this whole conversation. They are at the forefront, taking up the most space in this conversation. And yet here we find, you know, our northern Métis communities are really setting the benchmark. I think this uh, this deal in Norman Wells could, if you translate that down into the cartel or down into other, you know, organizations, other Métis organizations, whatever, um, I think it would set a standard that's that people will have to meet. And uh, hopefully that standard is working together with other Indigenous to come to a mutual understanding. But that is something that I don't think the uh, the cartel is too keen to do. Well, given the current language we've seen in their their uh, monthly newsletter and given the interview <laughs> yeah. status that we're on APTN, you know, it, it seems very much the they're content to overlap Métis claims on top of a First Nations claims. And I think that's a... Uh, you know, terribly sad situation. Absolutely. Um, and especially con- especially contrasted with what's going on up north, yep. where you see that unity and harmony. I mean, imagine imagine uh, being able to totally flip a municipality to indigenous control. Oh, that'd be amazing. You know, yeah. Um that that you know, that that kind of a model is amazing. So then I, I have a question for you. And we we see the the cartel. We see other organizations that are having a real hard time getting to this point, right now. Um, we all kind of started at the same place back in 1982, and so I guess my question would be: when you look at these Métis up in the north, they don't have hundreds of thousands of of members. You know, this one in Norman Wells, they have 300 members, but that's Satu Dene and Métis. So let's us let's just for good math, guess that 50% is Métis, so that's 150 people. And then the other Métis organization, it, it it only has a few hundred members. So how is it, is it the, do you think it's maybe the smaller size is able to, these guys are able to maneuver faster with the government, it seems? Or, because you'd think if you had 10, 10 or 20 or 30,000 members, that would really motivate the government, right? But it seems to be the opposite, where these smaller groups move much faster through the the pipeline of government promises. Well, in a lot of regards, it is easier for the federal government because you're talking about a specific people in a specific geographical location. Um, And this has always been, I think, the problem with with this, you know, I think incorrect structure uh, that is the Métis National Council in following the colonial mindset of structuring itself according to these arbitrary provincial boundaries. It means there's 30,000 Métis people in Alberta spread out across the entire, you know, provincial boundary. True. It is much harder for the provincial government to negotiate with a people that is sporadically spread out everywhere. If we had, I I think, and that's why, you know, I've talked uh, extensively about a community-driven organization. It is much easier for communities, I think, to navigate um, with the federal government into different levels of government because they're tied to a specific geographical location. Um, And that's a model we should be really adapting when we structure our organizations. Because not in for our own need, but we're never going to achieve anything when the government has, you know, they're the bakery. We we have to be able to position ourselves in a place to best negotiate and best channel these avenues to, to work the system to our advantage. And I think that's what this is really demonstrating that I see. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think, um, I, I don't know, maybe that'll set, uh, um, maybe it'll give communities that are within, even within the cartel or outside of the cartel, the idea that 
you know what, if, if that community can organize themselves and negotiate on their behalf, maybe we can too. And so is the model of having one national Métis organization and, you know, then having provincial representative, like, is that outdated? Is that even workable? Or it would it be better to, like, you know, let's take the, the cartels example here in Alberta. You have these, these regions. Well, would it almost be better to negotiate on a regional level? Because how does somebody negotiate for, like you said, for people spread out over three different treaty territories across an entire province? <laughs> how do you negotiate rights on each one of those when you have different treaties to deal with, different First Nations to deal with, different rights to look at? You know, I, I mean, we already see that problem in Alberta with harvesting nothing south of Red Deer because that's on Blackfoot territory. And, but, you know, so it, it becomes very segregating in and of itself. So I'm just wondering, like, I almost wonder if communities like Fort Mackay or, you know, whatever community, Calgary even, would be better off negotiating for themselves. And maybe that's something they should look at. Yeah, I don't really think there's a problem having large organizations, but I, I think it's it's the age-old thing that we need to talk about community first. And I think communities yeah. have to have a much larger role. Yeah. Given these events, it really is setting up, you know, what's going on in Fort Mackay, what's going up in the Northwest Territories, land deal negotiations, self-government negotiation deals. We see that we're only going to be able to replicate this further south on a community-by-community basis. Yes. Now, that shouldn't stop us communities of Métis people joining together to form a larger collective and, and use that strength. But really... It's like you said, Métis people in, you know, south of the Red Deer River have a very different set of circumstances than those up by Slate Lake. For sure. Yeah. Well, and, and then so, when you look at a provincial organization like the MNA, they have to negotiate for everybody. Well, how does, if you're a community and you want specific things, how do you even get your voice heard when there's 30 other communities that want their specific things? You know, and we talked about that's kind of we touch on that a little bit when we talk about the budgets and all these promises for housing money. Well, if if you're the MA, who gets the housing money? You know, how do you even decide that? Well, is it the community of Conklin who has 30 people in it who really needs it? Or is it the community uh, in Edmonton where there's 500 people? But they also need housing. So who's whose housing is worse and who's who gets the money? And. You know, maybe it would be better to, in that sense, to have communities negotiate for themselves. Well, and we see that. I mean, how many Métis people are living in Calgary? Yeah. You know, and so, if, you know, based on the colonial system of, of governance, which the, the cartels directly mimicked off of, we know that the, all the money always goes to the, where the majority of the people are. Yeah. You know, if you live in, in Western Alberta here, you know that the majority of all the money goes to Ontario and Quebec because they have the majority of the people. Yes. It's a simple math. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, that are we always going to leave small Métis communities like Conklin out in the cold in these giant cartel organization structures because they simply are the minority? True. Yeah. Well, I mean, even look at it just provincially, like you said, in the colonial structure. I mean, the towns, the small towns, the hamlets, they don't get near the attention, the funding, the the infrastructure su uh, support or anything that the cities like Edmonton, Calgary, Medicine Hat, Red Deer, you know, Fort McMurray, they don't, they don't, these small towns don't get that support. Um, and because there's not enough people living there <laughs> and, and that's what you're going to see. And, and I, 
So yeah, I think there is a I think there's a, a place for a, a larger government or a larger organizational body. Um, however, I do think you're you know I totally agree with you that we need to be more bottom up rather than top down. Yeah, and I think there's there's a lot of opportunities for that. We have a lot of historical context for that within you know Métis uh, history within First Nations traditional governance. We have all kinds of models for these kinds of. I think more reflective of our past and where we need to go in the future, specifically dealing with the federal government. Um, they clearly seem, the federal government seem, clearly seems more mobile in moving with site specific communities than they do with these, uh, you know, uh, provincial monolithic cartel organizations. Well, and, and I guess the only offer of defense that I would give would be it's probably a lot easier to negotiate a deal. In a place like Norman Wells, where it's a smaller community, but it's a very, like you said, it's a very specific land area. Um, and because there's not, you know, a, a hundred million other people in the surrounding areas, it's really easy to negotiate a deal there, as opposed to, like you said, you know, you know Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. Well, where do you even begin? That's a very different monster to kind of go after, right? So I, I guess that, that would be my only... I guess, slight defense of, of the cartel, but not really. Um, I agree. So I don't, I mean, I think it's a, I'm, I'm excited to see where this goes and I, I can't wait to see what happens on a, on a personal note. Uh, Satu Denny is actually the Denny people of my wife's uh, ancestry. So it's uh, kind of exciting. Her people are from Norman Wells uh, historically and they kind of moved down to Yellowknife, but in the more recent generations, but, uh, so it's kind of cool, kind of a personal connection there for me. So hopefully, hopefully this will go through and then I get to go up there and visit. Moving on. I thought we would talk about, there's, I don't know if all of our listeners have seen this small little video that's been going around the internet where there's a bunch of, uh, students wearing red make America great again hats. Uh, and they seem to be mocking um, a First Nation elder while he's drumming and singing, which the news all reported as chanting, which Indigenous people don't chant, at least not from what I know, they sing. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> if, for anybody who hasn't seen the video, go check it out. There's been a lot of discussion about this video, a lot of outrage. Then some longer versions of the video came out and everybody started defending these kids and some even going as far as to say the kids were the victims and all this, these high school kids. So I, what did you think, Jason? What was your thoughts on that? <laughs> no, throw you right well, I, right I, down I, to the bus on yeah, that Yeah, right under the bus. <laughs> um, I think everything for me, you know, we can talk about who moved in on who. We can talk about you know, a lot of different issues that were there. One, uh, it's American and I'm not American. True. Two, the reality for me is all that really mattered at the end of the day for me was when you're looking at, you know, the elder and the youth who are standing there, what, what is the physical interaction that's going on between them? I would say there was not a lot of respect. Yes. Uh, you know, there was not a lot of, of understanding, I think, you know, on the youth side of the position of how you treat someone with respect, even if, you know, that person stepped up to you and that elder stepped into your space and continued to drum and sing, what should have been the, the respectful response? 
And it doesn't have to be about, you know, a settler versus an indigenous person or a make America great. It should be how we raise our children to respect elders. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to, from what I understand, is there was another group that was trying to, that the kids in this other group were kind of mouthing off to each other. And the indigenous that were there just happened to be there. They had a permit to do their own thing. And when they saw these two groups kind of yelling and, you know, getting nasty with each other, they actually, the whole point of this was to walk in and get between them and kind of try to diffuse the situation. So the the reality is, as far as I'm concerned, the, the indigenous that were there, including um, the elder, uh, Nathan Phillips, uh, they were trying to diffuse the situation. And, and I agree with you 100%. I don't care what's going on. If... I see an, an, an elder, or, or actually, if I see anybody who's drumming and singing, they don't even have to be an elder. I mm-hmm. would, I would, if my daughter stood and faced them like that, that I would not be a happy guy. I don't care what was going on. That's just the the look on the face, and like you said, the physical interaction screams disrespect. And putting everything else aside, at the end of the day, that's what was happening was a disrespect for that indigenous elder who also happens to be a Vietnam vet. So, and, and that's really what I took away from it. And I think people get, we, we tend to deflect. I find we get sidetracked in a lot of social media about the real issues of the day. Yep. And, and for me, that's what it really boiled down to is here. You have a youth interacting with an elder and I don't, it doesn't even have to be my elder. I don't even no. care if nope. there was, uh, you know, uh, an elder, who walks in from any community, even the settler community. I respect that. And I hope I have taught my children to respect that. And so what we see, though, is this popular motion in society that the, the we don't have to respect anybody but our own selves and our own opinions. And I think that's terribly detrimental. Absolutely. Well, it's kind of like a, a very narcissistic sickness that I think has pervaded throughout our our, you know, I guess culture here in Canada and the, and the United States. I mean, we like to say it's, oh, it's the United States, but let's face facts. It's very narcissistic here in Canada as well. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, it's a very good point about how, you know, like you said, well, if it's not somebody that I care about, I don't have to show that any respect, but you know, you really do. I mean, I, I guess we can sit and play the what if game, but the, the all day long. But the truth is, is if what what how would people respond if this had been a uh, Vietnam vet who was um, you know white who went in and started singing the national anthem with a bunch of other got people that he was with to try to diffuse whatever situation they thought was happening? Would that person would that a kid with that red hat stood there with that same you know look on his face? with that same defiance of not relenting space to that elder. And I, I tend to believe they wouldn't. I tend to believe they would bow down and they would move to the side and they'd show respect. And and I guess that's, you know, for me, that's what they didn't do here. And I think that does speak to, to one of the issues and that's the, the divide that there always has been and there continues to be yeah. within the settler society that doesn't respect anything that's other. Yes. And that that's the real tragedy of that and I think if if you're looking at that that's really what that hat he was wearing stands for in in our time. 
Absolutely. Is that if you're other, then you're not worth respecting. Yeah, for sure. Well, and then I, I guess what I hated doing was finding out more and more about these kids in their school and uh, like, for lack of better English, and I apologize, but the shit that they these kids do at their school is insane. And uh, I don't know if this stuff goes on at Catholic schools in Canada, but uh, like I saw pictures of, you know, their their fan base for their basketball team doing all blackface to try to taunt the other teams, you know, pers- people of color that are on the team. Um, There's a video that came out that was like an hour before this, the, the big, big famous video where these kids are all sitting, you know, in the park and they're like, you know, catcalling women as they go by and, you know, things like that. And then I saw a bunch of Twitter stuff where everybody was like, you know, I went to that school for a year and they're disgusting. It's brutal. They're racist. They're sexist. They're, they're anti, you know, anti-gay. They're, you know, just all this nasty stuff came out about them. Which really didn't have much relevance on on the specific situation, but it kind of gives you a backstory as to maybe why that kid was standing like he was. Sad thing is, is he has parents and he has a community that he is insulated in, where that becomes the norm. And I think it really is the the testament to the underlying problem we still have in 2019 of the great difference of values and value yeah. system that are between indigenous communities and the settler society at large regardless of what religion, they all believe the same thing, really, is that if you're other than the dominant society, then you don't really have a value. So, yeah, that was, uh, it, it went, it's, and actually it's still going on, um, it, you know, Facebook pages and stuff that I'm a part of where they've posted articles about this. Uh, there's lots of people debating it and trying to defend these kids. But I'm, I'm with you at the end of the day, you know, I, I would hope that my child would never act like that. I would hope that the yeah, the kids she's friends with would never act like that. So why these kids are allowed to act like that? I don't know. I mean, and then it kind of opens up that whole conversation about like, you know, these, these, cause it's an all boys school and it kind of opens these conversations up to where, you know, all these stories about, you know, the white, the white uh, football quarterback who rapes a girl and then only gets like a month sentence or community service. Cause we don't want to impact his possible career in football and he just happens to be a white kid. And so it kind of opens up that gate again and, and it's unfortunate, but it, it really does open that gate of in the conversation of entitlement and privilege and things like that. So I think the reality is, again, that's a conversation that only gets brought up outside. I mean, inside of that circle, everybody outside of it. if you're indigenous, it's not a, a conversation. It's something we know is a fact. Yes. That there's privilege, that there's, they have the segregation of sexes in schools because of these, you know, you know, archaic ideas of propriety within their society. For sure. You know, that's their, that's the European colonial problem. Yeah. And that's nothing more than transplanted here. When you're indigenous, you you understand our background and our histories and the way communities work and you understand the difference between men and women and nature and all these kinds of things. You know, it's a very different movement through life. And I think all these kinds of things and confrontations between this youth, that look on his face and that space of the elder, really just shows the, the very different value systems that we have and how pervasive that is even in 2019. Absolutely. And and, and I think, you know, I, I've even seen people talking about the fact that, you know, uh, you know so here's, 
a group of, you know, white settler kids that are, are acting out like this again. And everybody starts defending them and making excuses and claiming that they're the victims. But yet, when it comes to any people of color, if this was a Black Lives rally, Matter rally or something along those lines or, you know, anything like that where it's people of color, it would have been a completely different ballgame. Um, and and I, I just, I absolutely believe that because you see it repeated over and over and over and over again in the media. Um, you know, how many times have you seen white kids from a university totally go rioting after a sporting event and everybody goes, oh, they're just having a good time, those boys. And um, But then you see like Black Lives Matter who are, you know, just marching down the street and it's tear gas and guns and things like that, which kind of leads into our next conversation about the current apology. And we'll I'll tie that together in a minute. But um, I don't know if you had anything else to say about this uh, Covington Catholic student video uh, that we haven't already said, Jane. Anything no, I could go on for a while, but I think it's I think we've covered that one. <laughs> I know all and I don't want to go on too much just because I mean it's so covered on every social media you can imagine. So if if you want to learn more about it and you haven't already, just go to social media and you will be overwhelmed with what you find out. <laughs> <laughs> just read the comment section. <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. Um so today we had uh, another government apology uh, from Carolyn Bennett on behalf of the Canadian government, apologizing for the forced relocation of people in Nunavut from 1949 to 1959. And again, I'm going to apologize because I can't speak Inuit. I have no idea how to even try to pronounce uh, the word. That's just my bad. But I thought it was interesting because right now, currently what's going on on the West Coast is we have uh, armed military who has taken up in a temporary base on in sovereign indigenous land. And yet we're apologizing for the forced relocation of indigenous people that happened 60 years ago. Very interesting. Hey, Jay? Yeah, it's interesting. That's a nice word. Interesting. <laughs> is that is that like code word for insert face palm here? It, pretty much, yeah. It was, it was me trying not to swear is really what it boils down yeah. to. Um, but yeah. Just- Again, it, for me, it was it was a big week of really coming to light the very, very different value systems that are so pervasive between indigenous communities and the, and the settlers. You know what I mean? The colony, the settler state. <laughs> you know, when you have all the power, I guess it's pretty easy to sit down and pretend that when you're a thousand miles away, you can make an apology and it might seem legit. Yeah. While at the same time, invading another sovereign indigenous land to displace those people out of your way for progress. Well, you're, you know, colonial progress. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's just it. I mean, I, 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 I can't un- comprehend how, you know, you can turn around and apologize for doing something while you're currently doing it. Like, um, you know, long ago, I, I, you know, I, I, I was trying to teach my daughter what an apology was when she was little. And so, you know, I, I would say to her, well, an apology, you don't just say you're sorry because without any, it has to mean something. Otherwise, you're just you're just saying it so that the other person stops talking about it and you don't have to think about it anymore. So for me, it was if you recognize that you've done something wrong, or you know, or hurt another person's feelings or whatever, but you've done something wrong, you genuinely feel remorseful that you've done that, and that you plan to learn from that and try not to make that same mistake again. But we can't really say that about government apologies <laughs> because they're apologizing while they're doing it. 
So they clearly haven't learned. Well, it's almost like that, you know, when your kid is apologizing, but really what they're apologizing for is that they got caught. Yes. Not not that they yeah. not that they feel what they did was bad. Yeah. It's that somebody called them on it and you know, so they're yeah. hoping that, you know, you won't notice. Uh-huh. And it really begins to ring hollow uh, and should have rang hollow for some time now. You know, there's no such thing as reconciliation. So what is the point, given this, what is the point of this apology at all? Absolutely. Like, I I hope, my hope is is that it it gives some of the people that were, you know, affected by this in a negative way, maybe some closure, maybe an ability to move forward, maybe an ability to, you know, start letting go of that trauma to, to lead their lives forward. I really hope it does. But the truth is, is when it followed up by no actions, I mean, we've seen an apology for residential schools. We really haven't seen any changes in the government, in any government, Harper government or the Trudeau government, as far as how they really view Indigenous people. And you've said it repeatedly in here, this this difference of values and how if you're the other, you don't really fit into our game plan here. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I, I, while I hope it gives somebody some closure, the same time, I it's just another lip service apology, in my opinion. I, I can't see it any other way. Absolutely, you know, how can we talk about uh, re- reconciliation? How can we even talk about you, you know, making it right? What happened with kids, uh, you know, in the past in residential schools when we have just about as many kids going into to care right now? Yeah, and it's ridiculous. Yeah, and well, so we say, oh yeah, we're sorry we took all your kids, but we're going to keep taking your kids. Yeah. Well, and they apologize for the 60 scoop, but they're still scooping kids. You saw, there was a video that came out, what, last week, I think, where they yeah. showed that they just walk in, there's an indigenous woman who gave birth, they just walk in, take the baby, walk out. Like, I, I understand it's just a short video, but like, what? that doesn't happen to anybody but indigenous people. I mean, you got to be really down and out in order for them to do that if you're not indigenous. So we see yeah, those videos, and, and yet there was an apology. And I think that's where we as Indigenous people need to wake up and demand better and not put up with it. You know, we need to stop giving out blankets and headdresses and, you know, sacred names to people because they said they were sorry. Yes. You know, it, it doesn't mean anything. No. no. So why do we give them honor and respect and pretend that their apology means something? You know, to these elected officials, when at the end of the day, the policy is, is hasn't changed. Yeah. You know, 20, 2019, and we have episodes going on with, with, you know, a huge number, a disproportionate number of Indigenous kids in care. Yep. You know, that's unacceptable. Well, and, and in care, and then what was it, uh, just before Christmas there, the story broke about, uh, you know, Saskatchewan, and I think one other province was still doing uh, coerced sterilizations. Uh, so we clearly haven't learned since, you know, the eugenics era of Alberta even. Um, so we're, they're still doing it. They're stealing children. They're still committing genocide. They're, you know, you have organizations working with the government to commit genocide against, uh, Eastern Métis, against anybody who doesn't fit into the colonial plan, um, you know, non-status are pretty much the forgotten indigenous people that don't really get anything out of anybody. Um, you know, just stuff like that. And it's still going on. 
we had snipers and you know dogs and violence on the East Coast a couple of years ago for protesters mm-hmm. against fracking. We got this shit going on in the West Coast now for a pipeline. Uh, you know, we've we've seen it before in the past, and it, it just continues to happen. So what are yeah? What is what is reconciliation? What are these apologies for? Yeah, and I, I think it needs to really begin to set the tone. Uh, when when we as indigenous people interact with the, our colonial counterparts, what our expectation should be. Yeah. You know, we need to understand that there is no such thing as negotiating in good faith. Absolutely you know? not. I mean, we should we should have learned we should have learned that a long time ago. But it seems this ongoing conversation with indigenous people that somehow we're going to make this new deal with the government, and they're going to live up to their promises. Yeah. But. It hasn't happened in, in 200 years. I see no reason why in 2019, there's, I don't see much hope on the horizon that, you know, if we sign some kind of framework agreement, if we sign any kind of a piece of white man's paper, we need to really be asking ourselves, how are they going to use this to screw us over later? Yeah, there's always a catch. What are, what are the strings? What's the catch? Where, where are the loopholes here? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I, I know I... I guess it's a testament to how trusting and, you know, the indigenous people really are, that they continue to trust a government that continues to not be trustworthy. But I, I, I want to cycle back. You said, you know, we shouldn't be giving on headdresses. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think these leaders like Justin Trudeau and Carolyn Bennett, I think they need to earn them before they get them. I think at the end of Justin's political term, if he were to get a headdress for all the accomplishments that he did, that would be, to me, a much more acceptable thing. Um, or get a sash, or get a gift, or get sacred items. But it would be at the end of his term when we've seen what he's done. Well, and, and that's what I find so funny. We have these politicians who do nothing more than get elected, and simply because they, they won a Democratic vote of 50 plus one, Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was only two people running. Um, <laughs> somehow they're, they're worthy of these, this respect and this honor from our, our communities and from our, our people groups and, you know, First Nations and Métis communities. And I just don't understand for the life of me, given how we're being treated across the board, there is nothing that I see that is worthy of, of this kind of respect. Not at all. Not at all. No, and because, and I, I think I've become really jaded simply in the fact that when they do announce something, there's always that flip side. So, you know, today, I didn't get into it today because I just didn't have time to read the article, but there's something come out from the federal government about how they're going to change the way they fund uh, on-res schools to make it more equitable, more more equal. Now, I didn't read the article, so I don't know the specifics, but right away, I'm like, well, equitable in whose eyes? And are these changes that are really good? Were they Assembly of First Nations led? Or were they actually First Nations led? You know, that kind of thing. So right away, I've already doubted it, no matter what. And I think that's that's just a simple, um, that's a product of what they've how they've treated Indigenous people for the last four years. Well, in, in regards, let's be honest, why, how would you not? Because when you read the headline like that, you can only come to one to two conclusions. A, they're actually going to match First Nations education with, what, 
the rest of everybody finally? Yes. Rather, that'd be a bloody miracle. Or what, they're going to start underfunding all settler schools to the same <laughs> level they're doing it for First Nations people? Hey, to balance the budget, they might do that. So who knows? Yeah. At least they're all equitable then. Hey, look, you're all underfunded. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. I mean, when we're talking about equal funding, that should be a no-brainer. That shouldn't even be a policy. That should be everybody gets the same funding for a school on a per-student basis. That's, yeah. that's the bottom line. That's it. There's no policy needed for that. Um, it's kind of like I've always had this issue with healthcare. I cannot fathom for the life of me in a country that's supposed to have a free public health care system, although it's not free, but it's supposed to be a public health care system. Why is it then that Indigenous seem to have such a hard time getting health care and there's all these battles between who's going to pay for the health care? Isn't that irrelevant? Shouldn't you provide the health care and then figure the shit out later? <laughs> but, that, you know, it just seems to be the ongoing thing with the government is let's create a problem and divide people, especially when it comes to Indigenous. Let's keep things divided, you know? Well, and, and there's hardly a portfolio that we don't talk about where there is some kind of disparity. Yes. there. You know, you're hard-pressed to look at anything regarding Indigenous people where they're coming out with better funding, better resources, you know, better access than their colonial counterparts. For sure, And yeah. it really shows, again, that, that next level of government interaction, why is it that we think when there's a new pipeline that's going to come out, somehow we're going to be properly consulted on it? Yeah. You know, I don't care if you had nothing but hereditary chiefs and they were completely accountable to the community, you know the government is going to try to weasel around that because sure. they can't even give your kids decent funding for education. Absolutely. You know, these we got to stop thinking that these are, are different you know, items, they're not related to each other, you know. That's how the government likes to work. Well, no, education's that portfolio over there. Yeah. And, you know, healthcare is this little box over there, and they don't have anything to do with each other. Well, they bloody do because they're the same government, they're the same organization, and the same people. Yes. You know, they're in the same cabinet meetings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I don't know. I, I think we, we got to stop thinking of them as, uh, uh, anybody who wants to help us, th th I think we got to start looking at any government and saying they're going to try to protect what they have and give us a less deal than what we want. That's their that's their function. Their function is to negotiate us down to something we didn't really want, but works for them. That's their their platform, and you know that's a standard negotiating thing. Everybody wants to come out the winner. But the truth is these governments are not there for the best interests of First Nations, Métis, or Inuit people. They're just not. And that's been proven for, the, like you said, the last 200 years or more. So we got to stop thinking of them as that. we got to stop looking at them like, oh, no, this is a trustworthy government because it's the NDP government. It's the conservative. It's the liberal. It, none of that matters. What matters well, is... somehow, yeah, it's the year 2019 and things are different. Yeah. Because clearly they're not. Yeah. And I, I think that's the big challenge is we need to, to wake up to that fact that across the country, you know, in our own lifetime, we have seen it doesn't matter which government's in, the red or the blue, the pink or the orange. The reality is the government policies are the same. 
You know, we, we get the orange guys here in Alberta and they think, holy cow, it's going to be a wild revolution. The orange crush is here and we have the most pro pipeline NDP government ever. Absolutely. Why? Because the colonial system only goes one way. Yeah. So we need to, as indigenous people, wake up to the fact that if we ever want to see change, we're going to have to put what little resources we have together and make that change our bloody selves. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you, you talk to somebody who's uh, non-Indigenous or, or, well, even Indigenous, but you talk to somebody who's over the age of 60, and they'll tell you, well, ah, we have, we've had this problem my whole life. Oh, well, we've been trying to deal with that for the last however many years, my whole life. Well, how is it all these governments have changed and not nobody's ever dealt with that, right? And that's right, because they don't want to deal with it. They want to see us in poverty. They want to see our kids undereducated you know, underfunded. They want to see us not being able to access healthcare. They they want to see us practically dead in the, the lobby waiting room because then we're not around to uh, ask for any more, you know, hey, to, to remind anybody to maybe live up to the treaties. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's to their best interest for us to not exist anymore, for First Nations, Inuit, Métis to simply not exist or dwindle down enough in numbers that we're irrele- completely irrelevant when it comes to the body politic in Canada. So that's their best interest. Well, <laughs> that is not in the best interest of any Indigenous person. Um, so, you know, right from the get-go, the government's standpoint is we want to commit more genocide because that's that's our benefit. Um, and so I, I, we just got to we got to start realizing that we got to realize that these promises and these MOUs and all these agreements are a double-edged sword. And you gotta be, you gotta keep your eye out because they're gonna stab you in the back eventually. I mean, that's right. And so I think that really is where this all goes. You know, um, I, I think we have to look with with some hope to the future in in looking at organizations like we started the program talking about with what's going on up in the Northwest Territories, and that there is hope for our people moving forward that we can get a better deal. But yes. we're gonna have to stand united together to do it. Absolutely. You know, we can't we can't afford to trip over each other as indigenous groups and fight over each other. There's only one land. And if we want to see a way out of this, we're going to have to really combine our forces to strengthen numbers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the last thing I, uh, you know, I just, the question that kept bouncing around in my head when it came to these, this apology is when you consider what's happening on the West Coast right now, 60 years from now when it's 2079, are we going to be getting an apology for what happened on the sovereign territory of the Wet'suwet'en people? I, I I just, I don't know. But that's the question that keeps bouncing around in my head. How many apologies are we going to plan for? Well, and does it ever end? You know, does it ever when end? are we going to, yeah, when are we going to stand up and, and put an end to it? Because it really, the question resides with us. Because after, yeah. you know, over 200 years of interaction with the, the settlers, the reality is from their standpoint, they don't want it to end until we're gone. So totally. if we want a different narrative for our, our children or our grandchildren and the generations that come after us, we're going to have to take a very different approach in how Métis people and First Nations Inuit work together, collaborate together, and then how we jointly approach our relationship with the federal and provincial governments. Absolutely. I couldn't say it any better. I think that's a, a great way to end the show. I did want to say that in honor of these apologies that we just seem to consistently be getting, I wanted to throw some phone numbers out there for people. So there's the National Indigenous Survivors of Child Welfare Network. 
And the number is 1-866-456-6060. That's 6060. Um, so if you're a survivor of Child Welfare Network and you've been apologized to, you can go there. Uh, there's the Indigenous Wellness Helpline, 1-855-242-3310. And I've actually heard really good things about the Indigenous uh, Wellness Helpline. So if you just need somebody to talk to, you're going through some stress, whatever, it doesn't have to be super serious but if you just want to talk to somebody definitely give them a call there it's an indigenous line so it's very culturally aware very understanding so i've heard good things about them and for those uh residential school survivors that got an apology there's the residential school survivors and family program and it's 1-877-583-2965 and i may i'm just joking even if you didn't get an apology you can still call those numbers um but uh I just thought that was a good way to honor all of the apologies that we we have heard from the uh, federal government and provincial governments. Um, if you like having independent Métis media, uh, and that's important to you, and you want to hear more stories from elders across the land, different geographic areas, the only way we can do that is if you head over to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Podcast and sign up for as little as five bucks a month. And guess what? You get to be part of expanding the show and its content. I want to thank everybody that's already signed up and who has been supporting us on Patreon for a long time now. So uh, you guys rock. You're awesome. Uh, I don't know. You're if you're amazing. Talking. Absolutely. You guys are the way. Well, that's that's what's keeping us going because there is a cost to doing this, and and that's helping us keep going. Um. On a side note, uh, we're working on some stories that are coming up, and I'm trying to dig into some some stuff to bring you some some new stories that maybe you won't even hear in mainstream media. So stay tuned for that. Hopefully that'll be in the next uh, few weeks. And I think for both Jason and I, we will be back next week to rant and rave like we always do. But until then, the jig is up. You are the spark that's starting a fire that will spread across this land. And it will be a fire that doesn't burn, but a fire that cleanses, a fire that ignites in our hearts and creates light. <laughs>